Yeah, I, I gladly, you know, sent Josh, uh, not sent, but encouraged Josh to go so many years ago because, you know, we recognize the uh, embarrassment of riches that we have in the United States. We're so eager for the nations to uh, be glad in the Lord, to know the Lord. And uh, it just seems unusually strategic to have congregations like your own scattered throughout the world, uh, just outposts of the gospel. And uh, it is an amazing and humbling thing to be here in this room with you as you labor. I guess not all of you far from home, but I think, I think most of you pastors are laboring far from what, uh, what you understand to be home. Of course, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, uh, the New Jerusalem is our home. We recognize that. And that's why we're able to come together and have so much fraternity and so much fellowship as, uh, as church family. Uh, from all over the world. So I am thrilled to be here. Uh, Josh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you are in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you would, listen to these familiar verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must, well, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In the mid-1990s, uh, on a Sunday evening in Washington, D.C., I had the privilege of hearing the great New Testament scholar Don Carson give uh, a lecture, give a devotional on the verses I just read to you. And approximately 30 years later, the, the sentence uh, he spoke the only one he spoke that stuck with me was something like, what's remarkable about these qualifications is how unremarkable they are. He pointed out how the only qualifications unique to pastoral ministry are able to teach and not be a recent convert. Now, as I thought about that statement that I remember over the years, I've been tempted, therefore, to minimize the elder qualifications. They're unremarkable, after all. An elder just needs to be as holy as an ordinary Christian. Well, this is not Don Carson's fault, let the record show. Uh, this is my fault. He's absolutely right. They are remarkable for being so unremarkable. Nonetheless, the human heart being what it is, my heart being what it is, it's possible to minimize the importance of holiness in ministry when you recognize how, in one sense, unremarkable the qualifications are. As I look around the evangelical landscape in my lifetime, I've seen the elevation of skills over sanctification. That was a resounding theme in the podcast uh, that came out of America that some of you may have followed, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that autopsy of Mark Driscoll and how his character didn't keep pace with his competency. That's a very public example. But how many stories 
do we hear that it never go public? Right? How many men, and, and, and how many men actually continue in pastoral ministry covering up serious deficiencies in personal character that might, in fact, warrant them stepping down from public ministry? The doctrine of personal holiness is one of the least difficult to understand, yet the easiest to ignore. No pastor wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll fall out of ministry today. Many years ago, I was visiting uh, missionaries in both Russia and the Ukraine. We were going to go through Moscow to Chernigov. When we arrived in Moscow, we discovered that very day that our missions partner in Chernigov, a very gifted, uh, a very capable, a very fruitful pastor, had engaged in pornea at a massage parlor. And good ministry came to an end that day. The headquarters of Ravi Zacharias's ministry were just about 20 minutes north of where I serve in Atlanta. And for a season, before I actually arrived at the church I served, he actually attended uh, occasionally. Well, we know that God is sovereign and God will never lose any of his elect. Still, the tarnished reputation of a spiritual leader does damage whatever country he's in. Now, sexual purity in pastoral ministry is obviously hugely important. No one would disagree. But one of my concerns is that we can focus on sexual purity to the neglect of all sorts of other kinds of purity that God would have us model. Holiness in ministry is more than being a one-woman man. It's possible that you're sexually pure, but a glutton. Sexually pure, but a recluse. You may be sexually pure, but harsh in your speech. You may be sexually pure, but greedy. There is more than one way to be disqualified from ministry. And more importantly, there's more than one way to make a shipwreck of your faith. In that sense, we need to be holistic in our thinking about holiness and ministry. Now, God drove this point home to me a few years ago. I came to Mount Vernon in 2008. At the time, I was in my mid-30s, and I was, I was well aware of my need for sexual purity. The Internet went mainstream in the 90s, and so I was there when digital pornography became ubiquitous. And so I labored, you know, for, for years to greater and lesser degrees of success to keep my eyes pure. And for a season, lust seemed to be the only battle for holiness that I, that I was aware of, that I was consciously engaging. Now, meanwhile, our church slowly began to grow. And by that, I mean like barely outpacing the number of people leaving. One of our first hires, so I'm thankful that we were able to hire uh, men to support the ministry there. One of the, our first hires was a man to lead family ministry. And he had a big job uh, to think pastorally about ministering uh, to parents and to handle all the nuts and bolts of ministering to children from nursery to youth. Now, he struggled mightily with that. And understandably, uh, again, the pastoral ministry and the nuts and bolts. He put on a good face. He did his best. His work kept piling up. And unaware of his difficulties, I kept piling work on him. I expressed disappointment to him when 
his work fell short of my standards. And he would buckle down, and he would work harder, but nothing seemed to make it better. And then one day, he oh so gently pushed back, suggesting that every time he came to talk to me, he felt like he was talking to a prosecuting attorney. That's the, uh, the vibe, as they say, that I presented was one of a prosecuting attorney. Well, I dismissed his comment. The real problem I deduced is that he wasn't fit for the job. And eventually, uh, he resigned and, and, and moved on. It's thriving now uh, in, another, in another state. Now, a little later, God brought another man uh, on staff with me. He served faithfully. Now, we made sure that he actually had some administrative support. So lesson learned. Uh, I knew that we would make him an elder soon, the church that is. And each year, our pastors fill out uh, a performance evaluation, an opportunity to reflect on the previous year, plan for the future. And one question on the form reads something like, is there anything I should know as your supervisor to better serve you in your role? And this brother's answer is etched into my mind. He said he didn't think he could serve with me as an elder because very often in communication with me, he found me both harsh and intimidating. Now, how would you respond if somebody said that to you? Now, first, I wanted to dismiss his criticism. He was young and perhaps a little bit too sensitive. But I remembered how I had been called a prosecuting attorney by the previous guy, and I knew I needed to hear more. So I asked him to pick out a couple of, of elders uh, that could meet with he himself and with me, and we would talk about this, and he could share his heart with them in the room. And so I listened and I learned, and I eventually repented of a pattern of harsh speech that didn't rear its ugly head often, but it did rear its head, and when it did, it could hurt those around me. Now, looking back, I think my harshness had to do with my pride. I wanted to be seen and wanted to have a team that was seen as productive and smart, respected, and that could translate into me placing unrealistic expectations on others and then expressing my disappointment in them when they failed to live up to those standards that I set out. Now, I think there's nothing interesting uh, to either me or you that I struggled and struggled. I think what is interesting is that I didn't know it. I was a bad example without knowing how I was a bad example. So here's the takeaway. Pastors must constantly assess their character because Scripture demands we live exemplary lives. Pastors must constantly assess their character because Scripture demands pastors live exemplary lives. Now, over the course of the next few minutes, I'm going to say a lot of things. I see a lot of you are taking notes. I think the best notes to take would just be the Scripture passages that I cite. Like, don't walk away with me. But if you have like sort of like a systematic theology of some Bible verses on holiness, I think that'd be useful. But if you're really an awesome note taker, then you have at it. All right. I'd like to answer three questions. First, what does it mean to be exemplary in personal holiness? What does it mean to be exemplary in personal holiness? Second, why is this so important? Why is it so important? And third, what should you do if you're falling short? What should you do if you're falling short? So first, what does it mean to be exemplary in personal holiness? 
It means every aspect of your life is worthy of imitation. Look again at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Just scan over that list. The list of qualifications has been categorized in a number of different ways. I think it's helpful to put these qualifications in two buckets. First, a few of these qualifications are specific. That's the first bucket, specific. I've identified seven. An elder is to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Here's a qualification related to sexual morality. If married, he's devoted to his wife. If unmarried, he's saving himself for that day that he might one day be married. If single, he pursues uh, holiness in singleness. Right, sober-minded is specific as well. Right, he's a serious man. He knows, he knows when to put the joking aside uh, in order to discuss matters of life and death. Able to teach, verse 2. Specific, he must be able to rightly divide the word of truth, to explain the Bible accurately, to apply it wisely. Not a drunkard, not a drunkard, specific. Not a lov lover of money, right? targeting greed. There are temptations in ministry to use God's money given by God's people in frivolous, selfish ways. Not to do that, not a lover of money. Uh, for dads, keeping his children submissive, specific. One can peer into a family and see if the children are sensitive to the father's authority. Of course, not be a recent convert is also specific. Though no amount of time is given, you either in, in a particular church are a recent convert or are not. Now, the specificity of these requirements tells us that Paul had a particular interest in ensuring pastors are marked by sexual purity, he's very specific, mental sobriety, doctrinal fidelity, sobriety, financial propriety, parental authority, spiritual maturity, right, specific. Now, there, there is a second bucket. Uh, a host of qualifications that I would categorize as, as general. Again, with a little bit of fiddling, I see seven. An elder is to be above reproach. That's a catch-all term for integrity, right? A no accusation made against an elder should stick because he's transparently a godly man. Right? He's to be self-controlled. Self-controlled in what? In everything. He's to be respectable. Again, one might ask, in what arena of life is, to be, is he to be respectable? Uh, to whom is he to be respectable? Right? In every area of life, to everyone, respectable. He's to be hospitable. Now, you might argue hospitality is very specific, but I would note that it's not so specific that this is intended to be li limited to like, how often he opens up his, his home and has people around his table. This is hospitality in his, the entirety of his life, uh, just, not just with his food, but with his own heart. He's hospitable. He lets people in. He is, and I'm combining a few here, he is not violent but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. Again, you might take this to be specific, especially not quarrelsome, but put together, Paul is describing a man who, who generally gets on with other people. He just, he's, he's known for, for getting on well with others, really in all avenues of life. 
Paul is describing a man like that. He doesn't scream at the person on the other end of the phone. He keeps his cool in an elders meeting. He's not upset when he loses a vote. He doesn't fly off the handle when someone criticizes him unfairly. Okay? Uh, take manage his own household well. Uh, I think that's very general. It could relate to how much time he spends at work, how much initiative he takes in family devotions, uh, how he takes care of the yard, and, and on and on and on. He manages his own household well. Finally, well thought of by outsiders. And closely related to above reproach and respectable, he has a good reputation. He's a good neighbor uh, in, a, in, a, in a thousand and one different ways. All right, you can quibble with how exactly you know, I've itemized these qualifications. But I think you'll all agree that there are some specific things we are to be aware of. But the, the big picture is that every facet of an elder's life is under scrutiny. Right? He's an example in every possible way. I, I don't know uh, if this made international news, but in, in America, we observed LeBron James. Capture, he's an, he's a, a player in basketball. LeBron James capturing the NBA scoring title from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And that renewed the debate over who is the greatest of all time. The GOAT. LeBron or Michael? Now, the answer is Michael. But what's amazing, what's amazing about LeBron is that he can play every position. He's amazing at every position. Morally speaking, morally speaking, I'm not talking about skill sets here, right? You need to, because I know where your minds are going to go. Like, I'm talking about not skill set, I'm talking about character. Morally speaking, the pastor is to be the greatest in every position. I know that's not going to happen. I know Miss Betsy is godlier than you. But these qualifications aren't for Miss Betsy. Right? They're, they're, they're for you, pastor. Yes, the qualifications of an elder are remarkable for being unremarkable, but they are also remarkable for being so comprehensive. Like morally speaking, our lives are to be exemplary in every way. Though every pastor is first and foremost a Christian, there can be no doubt that every pastor is to be a leading Christian. He's to lead out in holiness, modeling for the church what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. And in that sense, the pastor must be more vigilant against sin, more aware of his temptation, right? more committed to personal holiness. Now, Paul's writings back up the proposition that a pastor is to be exemplary in holiness. Paul commanded the Ephesian elders, and by extension all elders, to pay careful attention to their lives. Acts 20, 28. Paul described the minister's life as holy, righteous, and blameless. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Now every member of the church should be blameless. The pastor must be blameless. He urged Timothy, Paul urged Timothy to have a good conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, 1 Timothy 1.19. And he warned that young pastor against participating in the sins of others. 1 Timothy 5.22. Paul summed up his counsel by asserting the pastor is to flee sin and pursue righteousness. 1 Timothy 6.11. To be exemplary, 
is to live a life that's a faithful pattern for how a Christian ought to behave. Christians don't learn how to be holy simply by reading the Bible or by hearing sermons. They are to look at the example set by their pastors. It's why Paul told the Corinthians, Philippians, and Thessalonians to imitate him. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. And 11, 1. Philippians 4, 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9. It's why he told Timothy to set an example for the Ephesians in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 1 Timothy 4.12. And he told Titus to be a model, a model of good works. Titus 2.7. And going back to 1 Timothy 3, it's why Paul began with, it's why he began with above reproach. The New Testament expectation is that the elders will be so well known for their holiness that it would be ridiculous to accept an allegation against them unless that allegation is made by multiple accusers. 1 Timothy 4.12 Again, the pastor's life should be a faithful pattern for how a Christian, how every Christian ought to behave. Believers must be able to look at our lives and learn how to relate to members of the opposite sex. Handle their money. Use alcohol. Be a churchman. Work hard. Rest well. Evangelize. Disciple. And the list goes on and on. Now the point is not that everyone should be like you. Praise God. The point is that your life should be a reliable guide for faithful Christian living. You are exemplary in personal holiness. Right. Second question. Why is the pastor's exemplary personal holiness so crucial? First, by way of imperative. Pastor, attend to your holiness for the sake of your salvation. For the sake of your salvation. As Peter said to the believers in 2 Peter 1.10, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, Peter was referring to the qualities listed in verses 5-7 through 7 of 2 Peter 1, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. The man truly born again, the man truly saved will practice these qualities. They will mark him. The man who does not will, Peter says, fall and so make a shipwreck of his faith. Now, there is, of course, greater scrutiny that is applied to the life of a pastor. So what I just said is true for every Christian. Females, males, pastors, not pastors. But there is greater scrutiny applied to the life of a pastor, which is James's point in James 3.1, when he actually discourages brothers from taking the mantle of pastor. He said, not many of you 
should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think this is a hard passage. One way that I think about it is by picturing a craftsman. One craftsman is told to build a bench for people to sit on in the barn. It's a good job. People in the barn are tired after shoveling hay. Right? It's good to have a place to sit down. right? So a craftsman builds that, that bench. It doesn't really matter what the bench looks like. Just you know, It's going to get mucky, but, but it needs to be built. The other craftsman is told to build the mahogany chest to hold the king's crown and the king's treasure. Now, whose work will be judged with greater scrutiny? I would say the man building the mahogany chest. A pastor is like the worker building a treasure chest for a king. We are to be hard at work building that which is most important to God, His church. Our tool is not a hammer, but the very Word of God. And our medium is not wood, but the souls of human beings. The souls of the saints. James wants the Christian to be slow to take up the mantle of pastoral leadership. He's to count the cost because his life will now be devoted to that which is most precious to God. James wants the potential pastor to see that. And in a way that I am not able to explain, God will judge the pastor with more scrutiny than he does any other professional on the face of the planet. You should not enter into pastoral ministry. You should not remain in pastoral ministry without a great deal of prayer and self-examination. Again, you should not stay in pastoral ministry without a great deal of prayer and self-examination. You should constantly be asking if you are up to the task mentally, if you're up to the task emotionally, if you're up to the task spiritually, if you're up to the task morally. I take 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15 to be a parallel to James 3.1. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3. Again, I believe Paul is writing about those in pastoral ministry. This is what Paul wrote. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I think Paul is connecting the ministry of the teacher, the pastor, and salvation. He's concerned about the content of our message and the character of our lives, the integrity of our building, the church. Right? Both the content and the character matter. Both are important. Neglect either one, and we run the risk of finding ourselves on the day of judgment, uh, either finding out that we did not know the Lord, 
or being saved, but, but only as through fire. I can't explain that. I just give you the word of God. So, pastor, are you a Christian? Can you pinpoint evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? Would people around you testify that grace and mercy pour forth from your heart like water rushing out of a mountain spring? None of us is perfect. We all fall short. But we ought to attend to our own personal holiness for the sake of our salvation. Second, pastor, attend to your holiness for the sake of the salvation of others. First, Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we are right to attribute salvation to Christ alone, but if we neglect to factor in the role of the pastor we have diminished the office we are privileged to hold. Somehow, I love that I'm explaining things I don't understand. <laughs> Somehow, in God's economy, He uses not just our words, but our very lives to press upon the hearts of our hearers the reality of His saving grace. And in so doing, both our words and our witness, through them, God saves some. Commenting on this verse, John Calvin addressed the unusual reality. He wrote, A pastor will become even more zealous when he is told that both his salvation and that of the people who listen to him depend on him his devotion to his office. God alone saves, and no part of his glory can be transferred to men, but God's glory is not at all diminished when he employs men's efforts to bestow salvation. God alone is the author of salvation, but this does not exclude the ministry of men, for the well-being of the church depends on that ministry. End quote. A surgeon may have the finest schooling and, uh, and, and nearly perfect skill, but if he comes to the operating table drunk, the patient may die. A pastor may be seminary educated, doctrinally sound, but if he pursues his vocation with moral laxity, God may very well pass over his ministry and turn his attention to another. We have at least two examples of this kind of good ministry in the life of the Apostle Paul. Consider Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders on the end of his third missionary journey while he's traveling south to Jerusalem, he recounts how he taught them carefully. He mentions how he taught them publicly and how he went about, verse 20, 
house to house. All right, my point is that Paul taught them uh, carefully and Paul taught them personally. Now, this personal ministry of Paul's had a profound effect on them. How do we know? Acts 20, verse 36. And when he had said these things, and again, he recounted his ministry among them. It was both careful and it was personal. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, admittedly, nothing in this passage tells me that Paul lived a holy life while he was among them. But he shared his life with them. Obviously, they cared about his doctrine, right? Without the gospel, they'd be condemned. But my point is that Paul did more than share doctrine with them. Paul shared his life with them. He had a personal ministry among them that had a profound effect on them. And that brings me to another example. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. Speaking to this church, Paul says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Again, what I'm doing is wrestling with these words that Paul shared with Timothy about watching yourself and the teaching. Yourself and the teaching. That you might save yourself and your hearers. Somehow, again, in God's economy, God uses our, our words, the teaching, and our witness, ourselves, to save some. And so it should be no surprise to look at Paul's ministry and notice that he did diligently share the gospel, sound doctrine, and he affectionately shared a holy life. Now, please listen really carefully. I don't mean to imply that you're not listening carefully after this point, but just in case... I don't want to drive you toward legalism. I don't want you to think the success of your ministry is fundamentally dependent upon your life. I want to respect, and I joyfully respect and embrace and, 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 and rejoice in the fact that, that, that Paul commended the preaching of the gospel even when the preacher was plagued by bad motives. And there's times when Paul said, what do I care? So long as the gospel is being preached. I mean, he was that kind of of, of, of apostle committed to the power of the Word of God to change people regardless of the moral laxity of the preacher. I, I get that. I, I praise God for that. That's Philippians 1.18. So I don't, want in any, I don't want anything I say today at all to devalue the objective power of the preached Word. I believe the Word has that power. It's amazing. My question in light of these other texts is simply this. Is it possible that God keeps revival at bay because the lives of his elders are not exemplary. And I know just even saying that can lead men into a downward spiral. Like, it's my fault my church is not growing. You need to backfill a lot of theology to sort of address your temptation to think it's your fault your church isn't growing. That's just a different, that's just a different topic. It's not what I'm saying. 
I'm just saying I look at these passages and they, they mean something. It, it means something. And I may not be smart enough to figure out exactly what it means, but there's a connection between the, the fruitfulness of our ministry and the fruitfulness of our, of our own personal lives. And I don't want the reality, the objective power of God's Word to neglect what seems to be a not difficult thing to understand. God uses our lives as well as our, our doctrine. So brothers, heed Paul's charge. Keep a close watch on yourself. Don't let a day go by without pleading with God to fill you to overflowing with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This holiness is required not only for your sake, but for the good and the growth of the church God has given you to lead. Third imperative, pastors, attend to your holiness for the sake of your prayers. This is related for the sake of your prayers. After calling on the sick to ask the elders to pray over them, James said, holiness is the fuel of an effective prayer. He said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, James 5.16. This is why Peter charged his readers to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, 1 Peter 4.7. Read through the New Testament. You'll quickly discover God uses the prayers of Christians to grow his churches. Acts 6.4, the apostles called for the deacons so they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They put prayer first. Paul prayed in Philippians 1.9 that the congregation in Philippi would have a love that abounds more and more with knowledge and with all discernment. Paul is praying for the church in Philippi. He prayed for the church in Ephesians 3 that the church would be strengthened with power and grounded in love and filled with all the fullness of God. He prayed that Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, Colossians 1.9, and that the Thessalonians would walk in a manner worthy of God. Right? This is Paul praying for churches. Like the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. How did a man like Paul pray? He prayed like this for the churches. If you believe you're to follow Paul's example, you are to pray diligently for the church God has entrusted to your care. Which takes us back to the words of James and Peter. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 1 Peter 4.17, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, walking in holiness is not going to earn us God's ear. Not what I'm saying. We have God's ear because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. And I also I want to note this. Undoubtedly, many of you have prayed faithfully. And the answer has been no. So I'm not implying that the answer is no because you are ungodly. I've got a daughter with a chronic illness. It's not the worst type of chronic illness, but it's a real chronic illness. And I've never prayed harder than when I prayed God would take her pain away. I want to be open to the possibility that that unanswered prayer is, or that no is a reflection of my own depravity, but I don't assume it is. I'm simply taking Scripture at face value. I know a good and loving God will often say no to a faithful and holy son because God knows best. He knows what it takes to make us holy. Jesus never sinned, and yet when he prayed for the Father to remove the cup of his wrath, the Father's answer was no. And yet, having said all that, my question remains, should we expect the God who hears our prayers to answer our prayers in the affirmative if we are negligent to live in and walk by the Spirit of God? I'm asking. 
All right, third question. What should you do if you're falling short? I have six answers. First, don't preach a sermon without preaching to yourself. Don't preach a sermon without preaching to yourself. One reason you may be falling flat spiritually or morally is because you are feeding the sheep, but somehow, in the process of feeding the sheep, failing to feed yourself. I love this admonition from a British pastor, Abraham Booth, concerned about this in the 18th century. He said, when ministers hardly ever make this practical application of their public admonitions and cautions, as if their own spiritual interests were not concerned in them. In other words, when preachers preach without thinking about how it applies to them, their consciences will grow callous and their situation with regard to eternity extremely dangerous. Right? So don't preach a sermon without preaching it to yourself. Second, put yourself under a godly man in your church. I'm speaking particularly to those who stood up as the primary preaching pastors in your congregation. If you are in a frontier setting, this will be hard. And you may need to find someone outside your church. I get that. But you can pray that God would raise someone from within your church. Now, I am not the chairman of Mount Vernon's elder body. Would the chairman of Mount Vernon's elder body please stand? Right, that is the chairman. Hi, Chad. All right. Uh, I have made it a habit to come under the authority of that elder chair. Now, I say under the authority. I'm not using strict ecclesiological words here. What I'm saying is I have sought to, I, I've recognized that of all the men in the church, like the only man who like con constitutionally has authority to lead a meeting I cannot lead is him. Like in our church, I can't chair the elders meeting. Now, if you do, I think that's fine. I don't think it's unbiblical. But at Mount Vernon, that's how we wrote it. I don't. He does. So if there's anyone at Mount Vernon who kind of has the kind of authority that I don't have, it's him. And so since before Chad were the elder chair, I have sought to go out of my way to talk to whoever holds that chair and be open about my struggles and about my weaknesses and about my temptations. I'm not saying I don't talk to my wife. I'm not saying I don't have men that I've known for, for years and years that I share that with. I, I, I hope that I'd be transparent with everybody, but I know my own heart and my temptation not to be transparent. I know their own hearts and their temptation not to challenge the guy who does the preaching. And so that's why I seek to put myself under Chad and kind of sometimes when I don't want to share something because I think he's not going to think I'm as cool as I think I am when I share this, I like brace my stomach and I, and I share it with him. Right? Put yourself under a godly man in your church. Third, if you're married, cultivate a gentle affection for your wife. If you're married, cultivate a gentle affection for your wife. God's given you a helpmate. You saw her as a gift from God to you many years ago, but it's possible that your love for her is cooling. When a wedge grows between a husband and a wife, his love for the Lord can cool with it. Loving your wife is not a guaranteed way to grow in your zeal for personal holiness, but it's part of it. As you love her well, you'll be reminded of God's kindness in giving her to you, and you'll be encouraged to exercise all the pieces of the fruit of the Spirit in her presence. 
which is going to bear fruit in your ministry. Number four, ask yourself, have I given into spiritual pride? Have I given into spiritual pride? It is difficult to pursue popularity and holiness at the same time. The pursuit of popularity requires God to be small to you, while the pursuit of holiness requires God to be big to you. These two pursuits are mutually exclusive. There will be plenty of popular pastors who don't really know the Lord. But every pastor who truly knows the Lord is popular in the eyes of God. And that's what matters most. Again, Abraham Booth, a warning. He said this, Guard then, my brother, as against the most pernicious evil, guard as for your very life against converting the gospel ministry into a vehicle to exhibit your own excellence or prostituting the doctrine of Christ crucified to the gratification of your pride or that it may be a pander to your praise. Number five, ask yourself, Am I expecting too much from my congregation? Am I expecting too much from my congregation? This is related to the first point. It, 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 or excuse me, the, the previous point. It's good to be appreciated by your church. I hope that uh, all of your churches appreciate you and the, and the work you do and, and, and your labor for them. That's good. I think it's good to even be respected by your church. I mean, they are to respect you. You're a pastor. To honor you even. But our congregations must never be our primary source of encouragement. I say this because there will come a time, if it has not come already, and I experience it more often than I care to admit, when those that I have loved, served, and invested in can wind up feeling like I've let them down. Maybe I did let them down. And I want to be open about that possibility and learn from their dissatisfaction. But I'm bringing this up to point, I'm bringing up this point to warn you to not let a disappointed congregation to lead you to neglect the Lord. Because a disappointed congregation can take the wind out of your sails. It can dilute your passion to pursue the Lord and find your satisfaction in Him, in personal Bible study and prayer. So God's got to be greater to you than your people or your holiness is going to take a hit. And then number six, and I end here, run to the cross. I like to say, because it's true, that the sweetest time of my week is typically the end of the day on Friday. I, I prepare my sermons on Thursday and Friday, and uh, everybody does it a little bit differently, but that's how I do it. Thankful to be able to have that time to do it. And by the end of Friday, I have spent two entire days focused on basically one Bible passage. So I'm wrapping up the sermon, and inevitably, I'm thinking about the gospel. I'm not saying my, the gospel is always at the end of my sermons, but you know what I mean. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it all together. Like, what is this all about? What is this all pointing to? Uh, you know, I want to preach Christ crucified. I want, I want to know nothing but Christ crucified. Like, you know Christ crucified, and all this talk about holiness and character will follow. Like, I want to know Christ crucified. And on the end of the days, as I'm wrapping up the sermon, nothing spurs me to holiness more than remembering that Jesus died for me. And nothing makes me want to be godlier than remembering I could fail as a preacher or be a milk toast pastor. 
and still be loved by my awesome God. And God, God doesn't love me anymore if one sermon is better than the other. That is really encouraging to me. I mean, that makes me love God. It makes me want to honor God by pursuing holiness. So if you want to be holy, there's really one thing to do. Run to the cross of Christ where you first found your salvation. Because there, dear brother, you will find your sanctification. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are holy. Holy, holy, holy is what we're saying. Um, you don't grow in holiness. You are absolutely pure. And we praise you for that. And we want to be a reflection of your character in the congregations that we are so privileged to serve. We know that our sanctification matters. And so we pray that you would grow us. But grow us primarily by keeping our eyes fixed on the cross of Christ. Lord, keep us from the temptation, even after hearing this talk, to think if we're just a little bit holier, you know, more people might stick around our congregation. If we're just a little bit holier, more people are going to get saved. Father, that's our temptation, to somehow think the success of our ministry is rooted in our morality. We know that's, that's ultimately not true. So we pray that you'd help us to read the Bible accurately and appropriately, and leaving the results to you, recognizing that you use both the, our doctrine and our lives for good. Help us attend to both. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have just a, a panel now to think about what we've heard together. I was going to say, I feel like this is the way our relationship is. <laughs> uh, Aaron, that was a feast. Thank you for serving us so well. Um, thank you. Um, if, if everybody would just briefly introduce themselves and where you're serving, how you're serving, it would be great. You can start with you. Hi, everyone. I'm Eugene. I serve as a lead teaching pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Singapore. I'm Anand Samuel. I serve as the senior pastor at Grace Evangelical Church in Sharjah. Aubrey Sequera. I serve as the senior pastor of the Evangelical Community Church of Abu Dhabi. And I'm in Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta. Um, as I was listening to uh, your talk, I thought maybe just give some initial reflections as you brothers were thinking about what he was saying, how the Lord instructed you or encouraged you or convicted you as you were listening to that talk. Wow, there's a, a lot I could take away. Uh, I think I like your point about how comprehensive the, the, the criteria are that, that Paul lists in, in these texts. I think that was convicting to, to think about not just one area of life. Because sometimes when I fight sin, I, I'm focusing on one area of sin. And I, I think I'm okay if that area is okay, but I don't always think about the rest of my life. So it's good to think about how comprehensive these qualifications are and how I need to keep watch on all of my life. And I think that was just a really good reminder to be aware of that. 
I think if um, your emphasis on on a pastor's willingness to share his his struggles, his weaknesses, I think that's very important. And to find someone he can do that with, uh, I think that's uh, something that all of us need to take very seriously. So thank you for that. Yeah, there's just a lot there. Um, I think the specificity, uh, like Eugene was saying, the comprehensiveness, but also the specificity of um, the pastor's holistic character and example to the flock. And, you know, they see how to live as a Christian by seeing us. Um, yeah, I'm thinking on that. Aaron, I was, I was just thinking more broadly as you were, were talking, as I was also applying it to my own life, it does seem that often when we're in these kind of settings, we wonderfully get a lot of theological instruction, which we need. But I, I wonder if we often overlook that. We overlook the need for the man in ministry's godliness and character. Have you noticed that? If you have, why do you think that, that it does seem to be often overlooked? Well, um, I, I do think people talk about it uh, in a fair bit. I remember being, at least in seminary, and I, I remember Don Whitney preaching on First Timothy, you know, watch your life and your doctrine. So it, it, it does come up. But I do think that maybe one of the reasons why that perception is, is accurate is because in my generation, um, I have tended to think doctrinal fidelity will take care of... Um, moral failure. It'll crowd it out. Because the guys who fall in ministry are like prosperity gospel preachers. Now, time proves otherwise. But I do think that's a temptation. Like, I'm good theologically. Theologically, people are godly. I'm godly. And that's just, um, I'm, I'm not a logic guy, but I think that's just not logical. I think sometimes we are so I mean, and we want to emphasize the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of the Word. Uh, what, you know, it's primarily what we preach that God uses as a means of grace to sanctify God's people. To the neglect of, I think in our circles, uh, the emphasis on the pastor's life itself is a means of grace to our people. You know, um, And the Lord uses us as a means for their sanctification. Keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. You will save yourself and your hearers. Uh, we even neglect, I think I was preaching 2 Timothy 3 last month, and in the context, Paul is talking about Scripture's own sufficiency. We think of Scripture is sufficient to save, so it's sufficient in our evangelism, it's sufficient for our teaching. But in the context, Paul is talking to Timothy and saying the Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And there he's speaking of Scripture's sufficiency for the pastor's own soul and to prepare the pastor for his work there. Um, you'd be prepared for every good work. The other place Paul uses that phrase, 2 Timothy 2.21, is talking about being cleansed from what is dishonorable so that you will be a vessel set apart as holy for every good work. Um, I think 2 Corinthians, you know, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and sometimes we stop there, and ourselves as your servants for uh. Jesus' sake, right? So they behold Christ in the preached word. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, and they behold Christ 
as that preached word is lived out in the life of the pastor. Mm. And I think sometimes our tendency is to stop with the preached word and neglect how that word is infleshed in our lives. Mm. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think that that verse is really helpful because it's redefining usefulness. Um, it's moving it away from competence to character. Uh, what does it mean to be useful in the master's hand? And you know that's that's uh, something I think we need to think about. But I, I have a question. Um, uh, given all that you said, um, how does that affect the way um, you raise up elders? Just very practically, your approach to raising up elders or training young men for ministry, um, given all that you said. So how does that flesh out practically? And just also as you answer that, Aaron, think also as well about how you would apply that to more men in ministry in other ways as well. Well, it definitely, <clears throat> because I'm preaching, recognizing my own deficiencies, I assume deficiencies in others. So I hope that there's a spirit of grace at our church where we recognize that you're not going to be the perfect elder. So my emphasis is less on you demonstrating your perfection as a proto-elder or as a brother around me. But if you never are able to articulate where you're falling short, that's where I'm concerned because I know you're falling short. And so I think that you know one great... Uh, the, the, the great guard is a kind of transparency. Um, you know, I know of churches that I think have run in a legalistic direction where a brother falls short and he's done. He's cut off. And I think every congregation and elder body needs to make its own decisions about when does a sin rise to the level of disqualified from ministry. And some are more obvious than others. Um, I want to embrace holiness in prospective elders, but really target this idea of transparency and the idea that where these brothers think they're falling short may not actually be the main area they're falling short. So I think it provides maybe some texture to our assessment of elder candidates. Uh, do you encounter men who fall on the opposite end of the spectrum where they see they're falling short, they take grace for granted, they don't want to do anything about it. I can't think of any. I'm sure there are men like that in our congregation. I can't think of any who make sort of our whiteboard of like thinking about. Uh, we 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 use uh, the gents and blokes worth watching. I mean, it, those guys. I think I I just we see good, and um, I don't see a lot of that in them. Eugene. Yeah, maybe just a follow-up question to that. Uh, you know, among your elder team, how do you encourage that kind of transparency and that ongoing watchfulness over one another. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm leading a team as well. I'm wondering, how, how do I do that in a way that doesn't just focus on the tasks that we have to do? Because sometimes I, I struggle with our meetings becoming a bit too focused on the business of the church and maybe not enough on how we're actually doing as, as Christian brothers. So I'd so, love to hear your thoughts about what, what are some things that you do to help that. Well, I, I'm so thankful in God's kindness that Chad is here because uh, he really leads out in that. He creates our elders' agenda and so he carves out time occasionally for us to check in with one another. Right now, he's carving out time for us to share how we're doing evangelistically. 
So the question that we're going around right now isn't, you know, how are you doing with regard to sexual purity? It's what are the evangelistic relationships in your life? I do think that's one aspect of our character. Do we love the Lord so deeply that we're actively seeking to bring others to know the Lord? And, um, but it, it takes a disciplined leader like Chad to get us talking about, about that. But I think what's ideal is not so much what happens when we're all together in the room. What's ideal is what kind of culture does your church have when people are together, including elders one-on-one, -on -one, are you talking about the Lord? Are you talking about his work in your life? And I found that one of the hardest things for every Christian to do is just be a Christian when it's not Sunday. And as elders, we're trying to live that out on a day-to-day -day basis. Just asking practically how, just in the preaching, in the praying, um, encouraging people to have these types of conversations. It's more organic than it is organized. Even as you say that, I think probably one of the temptations in this room is for us to get our identity, our significance, our worth in our ministry. And in the title or the function that we carry out week to week, you write in your book, Character Matters, sanctification requires resting. When we abide in Christ, we trust in who he is and what he has done. We come to him each day with confidence that on the cross, he took our sin upon himself, paid our penalty with his own blood, and bore the wrath of God we deserve. He becomes everything to us. As we rest, God works in us. How, uh, how do you help us think and grow in resting in the finished work of Christ? I'm going to answer very quickly, and I would love to hear what these brothers think, think about that. Um, I think there's no silver bullet to resting. It really is a kind of self-discipline to stop and meditate on what the Lord has done. So that's what, like that Friday afternoon exercise, that's me resting. Because my temptation in that moment is to hope that this is a really good sermon. And um, at that moment, I want to I kill, uh, I want it to be a good sermon. Like I don't want to do a bad sermon. But I want to kill that by just reveling in Jesus. And trusting that if I shouldn't be in ministry, Men like Chad will tell me, like, brother, we love you, but we think you're not clear enough on the gospel. We think you're not Christ-centered enough. You know, that they'll, they'll help show me the door. But in the absence of that, I'm going to try to think less about how good I'm doing. And I'm just taking a deep... I mean, it's like, it's like telling someone, how do you fall asleep? Like, people... Like, my superpower is sleeping. I love falling asleep, and I can do so naturally. Um, I don't know how to tell somebody to fall asleep. You know, how do you, how do you rest in the gospel? I mean, it is a work of the Spirit of God. So if you're not resting in the gospel, I would say pray that the Spirit would be working in that way. Any counsel on that? Or, as people heard that talk, I assume with our different consciences it will have struck us differently. Some may be very discouraged. Some may have felt the weight. Some maybe aren't as affected. How do you think through, you know, we are unworthy. Christ is worthy. How do we hold that together um, and rest in the gospel? Yeah, I think this is where gospel-centered preaching is so valuable. I mean, not, not just for those who hear us, but like, like you rightly said, to preach to ourselves. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have a team of elders who understand that, a staff team that understands that. I think I, one of the things we started doing this year is before we preach the sermon on Sunday, 
uh, we gather as a staff and just talk through applications from the passage. I, mean, I found that to be just a really helpful reminder to me of the gospel that's in the passage and just to hear encouragements from the staff. I think that keeps the passage uh, just real to me as well. I'm not just doing this as a job, but, but these are real truths that, that I need to hear for myself. I'm grateful for a staff team that you know, reminds me of that. I think for, for me, one thing to constantly remember is, uh, um, Aaron mentioned this, a, a kind of law-based approach to sanctification and growth is doomed to end in failure, right? And that could mean anything. That could mean some arbitrary standard that I've set up in my own mind for what I want to achieve uh, or, you know, living for someone's approval or... Uh, the ghost of someone in my mind that says, <laughs> this, is, this is the standard and I need to get there. Um, and I have to recognize first that God has declared us, declared me righteous in Christ. right? And that forensic declaration then becomes the basis by which I can pursue godliness by grace, not by law. What do you brothers do when you're not doing well spiritually? What are practical things that you do when you're not doing well spiritually? Or patterns that you have in place? Call Anand Samuel. <laughs> Anand, who do you call? Well, I, I, you know, I speak to my wife. Uh, I speak to one of my elders, Samson, who's uh, very involved in my life. Um, I go to him for counsel quite often. And uh, there are brothers at other churches that I will speak to, um, elders from ECCD. Yeah. Aaron, Eugene. Uh, I think for me, similar as well. Uh, talking to my wife, uh, talking to some of the other elders in the church. Uh, yeah, as well as I, I, you know, having pastoral friendships with pastors of other churches. That that's really valuable too. And and I think as as my sons grow older, so I'm a 14 year old and an 11 year old. Uh, I think confessing sin to them, I think that, that's helpful as well, especially when I sin against them. Uh, I, do, I do think that's helpful in, in reminding me of grace again. Yeah, maybe talk about cultivating friendships and how that's helping you in ministry and uh, what that should look like uh, for us that are in ministry. Well, I want to quickly say that I don't know if you remember, but was it 10 years ago, a number of years ago, we were on a regular Zoom call you, me, and maybe a couple other pastors. And I was going through a particularly hard season. And I think for some reasons, maybe the maturity of my elder body or my, I, I don't know, for various reasons, I really leaned into you. And I was grateful for friendships that God created um, that brought into my life. And we pursued that friendship um, outside of our, our own church. And that's been very meaningful to me. And I think that's what's valuable about this time together. I'll talk a little bit about this on Saturday, but there is a sweet thing. I mean, we tend to be friends with people who think a lot like us. And that's just a historical, sociological reality. And it's good to have people who think unlike you in different ways, but generally speaking, to be in a room of Christians, to be in a room of, of pastors, to be in a room of people with a burden for the global church, that makes the uh, possibility of friendship increase mightily. Um, but I just want to add, I talk to my wife and I talk to Chad when I'm struggling spiritually. 
Uh, I would commend this book. Maybe some of you know it. David Gibson, Living Life Backwards. It's on Ecclesiastes. It's been a real encouragement to me. Um, he writes this, life is limited by death. Your life won't go on forever, but death is not just a line you cross when your time is up. Death is an evangelist. He looks us in the eye and asks us to look him right back with a steady gaze and allow him to do his work in us. If we are wise, we will listen to and not avoid death. How does death help us to grow in holiness? How does keeping that in the forefront of our mind, if death is a better teacher to us uh, than even our own births, how does death help us as men in ministry? I think for me personally, it, it helps me pursue holiness, that discipline of grace that Titus talks about. You know, grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And nothing can give you um, quite the wake-up call like attending a funeral or hearing about someone's loved one pass away. Um, it's a reminder of your mortality. Uh, it's a reminder that you have one life, that time is short. Um, it's a reminder that Christ is coming back. Um, it helps us fix our eyes on our eternal hope. And uh, in light of that, as all the New Testament passages point us to, the end is coming and therefore pursue ordinary holiness, like hospitality, as Peter talks about. So um, the end actually helps me um, pursue righteousness in the present. And that's a really gracious reminder to me. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, so the church uh, that I'm a, I'm a pastor at is, is, has quite a large range of ages. So from teenagers all the way up to members in their 90s. Uh, I think one thing I appreciate of being a pastor of a multi generational church is just to see many examples of godliness and suffering, uh, especially from the older members who have health issues uh, and, and other difficulties in their lives as well. I think that's a reminder to me, not just death, but but the weakness that attends you know, the, the later years of life. I think that, that's a reminder to me to be humble and, and to prepare myself for the, the day when I'll be physically weak like that as well. And, and just to prepare my heart for, for that kind of suffering and, and, still to, and, and not willing to respond in the way that I see them respond. So that, that's been an encouragement to me just to think about that sort of suffering at the, at the end of life. Um, I don't know why it is. I, I think about dying a lot. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I think that's been healthy for my soul. Uh, we all have less time than we think we have. And we will stand before the Lord. And I think the proximity of that scrutiny before his all-seeing eyes is a good thing to have on the forefront of our minds more. Amen. So many um, encouraging and high points in your talk. I think one of the highest was that you knew about LeBron James. And Kareem Abdul, this is a joke, but I did note that you had to read Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's name. No. Yes, no, you no, did. No. You looked down. But you Ab weren't sure Abdul if you knew. Abdul-Jabbar wasn't in my notes, just Kareem. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. Very impressive. Thank you. 
I don't say that to feed your pride, but I do say that to ask about pride. I think pride, um, <laughs> I really didn't know how much you followed sports or the, you followed uh, the NBA. NBA. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we won't get into the Michael LeBron uh, debate. Don't need to. Good. When we think about pride, I think one of the ways that pride very easily rears its head in ministry is comparison. Uh, whether it's wanting that person's situation or fighting jealousy in some way or not thinking the Lord's been good to you. How do we fight pride? Um, you, you wrote in your book, pride cares more about the leader's significance than the congregation's sanctification. Pride cares more about the leader's significance than those you're evangelizing. Pride cares more about your significance. Brothers, just ways that you're fighting pride, ways that you've seen the Lord work in your life in these ways, we want to defeat our pride. I mean, at, at my church, you know, Joe Davidson, I mean, she, she doesn't really care that I'm, I'm here right now speaking to pastors. I mean, the people in my church, they, they value me because I'm their pastor and, and with the other elders. And I, I, just, I try to remember that. Like, fundamentally, I'm called to shepherd these people. It's a finite number of people. Other people may have more people in their congregation than I do, but these are the people that God's entrusted to my care with Chad and the other elders, and that's a humbling thing. And as I, obviously the best answer is stay focused on Christ. But in another sense, by just staying focused on the church that God's led me to serve, that's wonderfully uh, humbling in just a beautiful way. Um, I think my wife, my elders, are the great tools of God in my life to keep me from growing proud, and I am deeply thankful for their presence um, in those ways. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say the same thing. Um, marry a godly woman, that'll fix it. Um, you know, my wife is my uh, biggest encourager, but she's not impressed with me at all. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and I think if you just have a normal congregation, Right. Um, <laughs> especially if you're the senior pastor, you know, you'll have things said about you and thrown at you and, and you'll have, that'll... But they see know, the best of you and they see and the they worst see the, of you. Like, they know you that's really true. well. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they know all my strengths and weaknesses and uh, yeah, they're, they're not afraid to point those out to me and, and encourage me at the same and, time. And the blessing of that, of course, is what Paul says, they may see your progress. That's right. I mean, they're watching you grow in your preaching, your mm -hmm. ministry, but... God willing, they're watching you grow in your holiness That's right. before their very eyes as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just imp the importance of all of us being very rooted in the church, rubbing shoulders with God's people, them seeing us, us seeing them, the ordinariness of that and mm -hmm. what it can produce in our lives. Eugene, and then I'll get off. Yeah, just, just to add to that, uh, parenting is very humbling. You know, I, I thought I had things figured out when my kids were young, but I realized I don't. <laughs> so every, every year, every season, I, I think it's very humbling for me and my wife. Uh, and, and then having a, a team of elders to serve alongside. So, so I, I, I don't chair the meetings. Uh, I don't lead out on a lot of things. But having other guys do it, I think that helps as well. To not, to not be in the front seat all the time. But, but to sometimes take a back seat and just have other guys lead out in some meetings, lead out on some items. I think that's been humbling and, and very useful for me. I, I have a question um, in light of Adam's talk. And the question you just asked, Josh, if I may, 
um, so many passages that you cited, Aaron, where Paul commends his own example, right, and says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow after the example you have seen in me. And that's not something that I see in our ministries much. I think we're very, very hesitant to say to people, follow my example and commend our own example the way Paul did. And, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get around that by saying, well, Paul was an apostle, I'm not. But the standards are the same for personal holiness. Um, those passages apply to us. And so I've wondered why that hesitation in our circles among pastors in general to commend our own example the way that Paul did. To verbally, to verbally commend it? Yeah, to verbally even say, verbally say to people, yeah. I don't, um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. If, maybe I'm mistaken in that observation, and maybe lots of pastors commend their own example the way Paul did, but I, I don't think so. I, I think there's a, there's a great slowness to do that. I, I think, look at the frequency with I, Paul. Did. I think for, probably it, feels, it can feel prideful, but of course it's not. If you're standing up and you're leading in this way, that goes with the territory. And I think the way that you address the comprehensiveness of our godliness, the weightiness, all of that should be uh, up to snuff uh, in, in the ministry. Yeah. I'm certainly aware that people, I mean, one of the reasons why I probably don't talk about it, and I, I really mean I don't know because I want to think about that, but I am aware, whether I talk about it or not, that people are going to follow my example. Luke 6.40 says the disciple will become like his teacher. So I know that's going to happen because that's how God designed it. But why I don't more often put myself up as an example, the way maybe it is because I do feel like, I do feel some distance between Paul the apostle and me the elder. Are there any signs that tell us we're burnt out? We're burnt out. Talking about spiritually or physically? Uh, I'm talking about spiritually. If you, yeah, that uh, that we should be aware of. I, I primarily located in disordered affections. Um, I mean, thinking about Edwards and you know affections being kind of you have to do what you love, right? And we're doing this because we love it. And when I'm when we're in seasons where we're just grinding through it, you know, I don't love this, but I'm going to, mm -hmm. I just have to keep it up. All right, you know, quick that. counsel then on when in your own life there's persistent ungodliness, when should that lead you to step down from a ministry position? Any counsel on that? If, if you're privileged to have elders, when a body of elders, when, when, if you're being forthright with the elders about your struggles, and they're looking at the qualifications, which are objective, and they're saying, um, <clears throat> not only have you not met them, which is enough to say you need to step down, but sometimes things can be a little bit gray. Uh, when they understand that it's going to take months or years for you to get to a place where you can sort of with full throttled obedience meet these qualifications, that's got to be time. To, to step down. It may be immediately. I'm not, I'm not trying to give wiggle room for like you don't meet them, but it can be years. But if there's no, so not knowing the exact situation, 
if there's no pathway towards above reproach restoration, you know, then it's time to move on. You said look at the cross, which was a glorious way, obviously, to end uh, that talk. Other encouragements to those that might be struggling here? Discouraged? Struggling spiritually? I would say use this time as a little spiritual retreat. I know it's uh, uh, kind of a conference, but use it as a spiritual retreat. This is a unique opportunity. Most of you away from your, your natural setting, uh, surrounded by some maybe some old friends, but uh, just have really good conversations. You know, take advantage of this particular time together. Anything else? I think, I think days off uh, can't be overemphasized. So taking a day off, uh, I think that helps with burnout as well. Uh, uh, I think just cultivating good friendships. I think that you know, maybe asking for prayer more than we pray for people as well. <laughs> Being willing to ask for prayer. I think that, that for me is, is really important. Learning how to ask for prayer being specific, being honest, I think that's helpful for me. That's the word on burnout. It thinks about, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know that there's a word in Greek for burnout, but, um, but I think it's real. Physically, there might be physical problems, and those physical problems may be related to uh, spiritual depression. So being alert for spiritual problems. Um, not being able to rest. If you, if you can never go home and turn it off, and I know at some level you can't turn it off, but you know what I mean. If you just you can't ever rest, that's that's a problem. Um, if you're if you're married and your relationship with your wife is just not good, and in part because you don't have the energy to make it better. I know it's all of grace, but I think that could be evidence. And then I just want to just really affirm um, what Aubrey's point. Like if you can never go to the gathering and simply worship the Lord in spirit and in truth as a Christian, but you're always concerned about the lighting or the sound or how many people are there. I mean, that's a good sign um, that, that you're, you're burned out and something needs to change. And I so appreciated your exhortation that we are just first and foremost Christians and sheep. Um, and we're yeah. not our titles and our functions, whatever. We're Christians and sheep who need the word yeah. and need to be gathered as well. Thank you, brothers, so much for reflecting and thinking through that. Eugene, would you lead us in prayer over these things? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise indeed that you are a good God to us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that in Him we are justified, in Him we are washed clean. Father, we thank you that we can come to you as those who struggle, but those who struggle because we are righteous in Christ. Father, we pray that you would take our struggles, that you would strengthen us, help us to be faithful in all that you entrust to us. Help us to remember that first and foremost we are safe in your sovereign care for us. We pray that we would find rest in Christ. We pray that our hearts would be strengthened and refreshed. We thank you again for your goodness to us. We pray that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 15 minute break. 15 minutes, 11.40, we'll start back. Is that me?